You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? Um, I'm very well. Thank you, Valerie, for a Tuesday. I had a bit of a Monday blues kind of day today, but I'm back today, so I'm very happy. I went to see the Rolling Stones on the weekend at the Hunt oh, Valley. I know. And I'm thinking that that's possibly why I was feeling a little Monday-ish yesterday, but today I'm, you know. Why I'm would the Rolling Stones make you feel Monday-ish? Well, it was fun. It was a long trip. Oh, I see. It's, like five, it's five hours drive from here and then it's like a, we had this massive long lunch, like four and a half hour lunch wow. at Leaves and Fishes up there, which was fantastic. And then we went to the concert and then we jumped around and Mick was kind of old but still doing it, you know, so it was good. We had a really good time. And we kind of drove back and I got back and it was just Sunday afternoon, do the ironing for school and I don't know, I woke up Monday feeling a little melancholy, but Aww. I'm all right today. So thanks for asking, Val. How about you? How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Um, I think aliens have taken over my body. Oh, that's not yes. good. That can't be good. It's kind of good. It's um, because after a very long, you know, as in like years, break from the gym and exercise, for some reason um, I have gotten into my head that it's time to get back into fitness and, of course, I've just sort of thrown myself full pelt into it. (laughs) As you do, Valerie. Well, yes. So previously I would complain about going for a walk just to the corner shop (laughs) and now I'm waking up at like ungodly hours of the morning and heading down the road to do high-intensity, you know, weights and circuit and cardio. (laughs) So I'm be careful, you know, when you go from zero to hero in one hit, you know, it's very (laughs) dangerous at your age, Valerie. I know, I know. Even my partner says, you know, don't be a dumb ass and (laughs) ease into it. But I sort of tried easing into it and it just didn't, wasn't, it, it wasn't taking. So I thought there's only one way to go and I decided to go full, you know, right. full pelt into it. Given that so, I don't think I've ever seen you ease into anything, <laughs> I'm completely unsurprised. I have to say it's really fun though and um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And... Can you lift your arms above your head though? See, that's that's always a, you know, like because I always find after I've done boxing in high intensity and oh, run, yeah. that I actually can't, I, I kind of, I can't actually lift my arms above my head. My muscles are so sore. Yeah, that was an issue um, but it was more my stomach muscles that oh. I felt these stomach muscles that I never felt before, but what was, and that was in itself was okay, but what was more perturbing was um, that I felt that they were so way down underneath the surface of my skin. <laughs> 
<laughs> so deep inside. It's probably like a novel in this, Val. <laughs> I know, it could be. My road to fitness. Um, anyway, this is all about, this podcast is all about writing. So let us move on to what's been happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. Now, in... What we've um, seen this week is the announcement of the Mubas. Uh, that's M-U-B-A-S for those of you who may not have heard of it. And it, these are the most underrated book awards. Hmm. And uh, they're organised by the Small Press Network. And, you know, the aim of them is, you know, to recognise some of the books that aren't necessarily the blockbusters being published by the big, you know, Penguin Random Houses or Hachettes of the world. And um, these are the novels that these small and independent publishers have decided to really put their money behind and their faith behind because they believe that these sorts of things should be published. So the winner of this year's award was uh, Jane Rawson for her debut novel, A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists, which was published by Transit Lounge. Uh, and um, it's, uh, I, I think it's great that these, these small presses are um, oh, just investing the time and money and nurturing of writers so that those who may not necessarily have the commercial appeal for the big publishers uh, still have a potential outlet for somebody, for a press, small press that recognises good writing. I think it's fantastic. Like best Australian books you've never heard of. And I, like when you think mm. about the numbers of books that are put out each year and all of those books that, you know, really it's very hard to hear about all of them. And when mm. you, I mean, we've talked before about this business of discoverability and getting your voice out there and heard and all that sort of stuff. And like Jane has been um you know she's been shortlisted for awards she's had all these different things that have happened and she's been recognized for the fact that the right you know there's clearly a lot of um uh what's the word i want there's a lot of merit in the work but no one's ever heard of it so Mm. you're kind of thinking well I, i think it's fantastic that this award gives us the opportunity to kind of get that book out there a bit further and hopefully more people will discover it and her work and i think it's it's great that that you know basically that publisher that small publisher i think it was yeah. trans transit lounge yeah. transit lounge um will also be encouraged and hopefully you know to to keep keep um publishing these smaller works i think it's fantastic mm, i take my hat off to the small publishers i have to say because you know it is it's it's a big investment for it is. it's quite a high risk as well because you never know what's going to take no that's right but you know like they've obviously got a lot of faith and in this case their faith has been um What's the word I want? I'm having a shocker today. Rewarded. Rewarded. <laughs> what would I do without you, Valerie? Just Thank call you. me the dictionary. Okay, good. Yes. So we'll move on. Uh, now we're kind of in the throes. We're nearly at the pointy end of National Novel Writing Month. And um, I see lots of tweets and lots of people encouraging each other with the hashtag NaNoWriMo. Um, and, of course, there are a number of write-ins uh, for people who want to come and write with other people. Uh, about a couple of years ago, we had um, Friday night write-ins yes. um, at the Australian Writers' Centre and they were quite fun. People brought cheesels and cupcakes and, you know, cornflakes. <laughs> well, not cornflakes. cheesels? Wouldn't you Those... go orange? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, all sorts of homemade snacks and goodies and stuff like that and ended up writing. Um, but admittedly, that was a couple of years ago. And I know that there are other write-ins that aren't necessarily to do with NaNoWriMo. You don't have to wait for November to have a write-in. No. So um, I, I was wondering whether you've been to any. No, I've never been to a write-in. I think this kind of follows on from our conversation last week about co-working spaces and we discussed, I think, at length last week how easily distracted I am. And um, I think a write-in would probably have a similar effect on me. For me, it's very much a solitary pursuit, the whole writing thing. However, having said that, I do feel that... um, you know, lots of people are not like me. And I think it's a fantastic um, supportive environment for everyone to get together and talk about their stuff and see what's going on. And particularly at this time of the project, because anyone who has written any form of long form writing project knows that the middle of it is always the most difficult. You feel like you're like wading through concrete, Mm. trying to get enough words down to get to the interesting bit towards the end. Um, and so I, in my role as social media chickie for the Writer Centre today, I did put up some tips on pushing through the middle of a writing project because I always find that I get to a certain point and I think, oh, I'm never going to get this finished. And it's yeah. usually about now, yeah. middle, you know, when you're sort of sitting there going, where's this going? What's happening? Um, so I had a couple of tips. Do you want to hear my tips? I do. Okay. So my first tip was to stop writing while you still have something to say. I think that there's a, a tendency yeah. with writers just to write, 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 write. And when you get to the point where you've got nothing to say, that's when you walk away. Um, in actual fact, you should stop before that and then make a few notes for your start the next day because that way you get to get there the following day and you're like, oh, that's right, that's what I was doing and off you go. And you're mm. sort of a thousand words in before you even realise it. So that was my first one. My mm. second one was is that there's no rule that says you have to write in order. I think there's a tendency to think I've got to start yes. at the first sentence and end at the last sentence and I cannot divert in any way. Um, I sometimes find if I get to this point that if I write a, a scene from later in the novel, because I usually have an idea where I'm going even though I don't, you know, plot per se, mm. um, write that scene and it kind of can often jumpstart you and you've, then you've only got a, you've got a bridge rather than an entire road to get through until you get to the end. So sometimes mm. that works really well because you can always go back. You know, you go back. It's great. Absolutely. Um, and then my other piece of advice there, my third tip was that this is where you need subplots. Like if you haven't got a subplot happening by now, <laughs> get one happening <laughs> because they're going to be your saving grace of providing you with something new to write about in the middle of the story. So mm. this is when you sort of start developing those and thinking about what they might be. Um, as I said, you've probably usually started them by now, but but this might be a, a time to focus on them a bit and see see where they take you. Yeah, there you go. What do you think? What do well, you I think that uh, I think they're really good ideas, and if none of them happen to work, I have a fourth. Okay, <laughs> which is potentially to go to a writing because <laughs> even though you say <laughs> that you might get distracted, and I must admit, I apart from the ones at the writer center, I haven't been to uh, a writing somewhere else. But I was talking to an author who, you know, wrote some of her book at a writing in the inner city in Sydney, and they met like at a pub or you know that's something like that um, at you know say six thirty at night, and the there were no distractions literally no distractions because there were rules and the rules were you sat down and you weren't allowed to talk to each other for two hours and you were only allowed to socialize and speak to each other after two hours of straight writing so you couldn't speak about your work you couldn't ask anyone questions 
you could probably go to the toilet and that sort of thing. Oh, but they let you do that? Yeah. You have to put your but, hand up first or what? No, you don't have to put your hand up. But you <laughs> couldn't speak until the end of the two hours. But the bizarre thing was she says that at the end of the two hours, everyone just went bye and left and went home. And they didn't speak anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so if you're forced to write for those two hours, you you know, you're going to get stuff done. You get, you're going to get through that concrete. Okay. All right. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> see how I go. I'll, I'll report back if I ever find myself yes. in, okay? Anyway, I found an interesting link this week um, and it's on a, it was on the blog Write to Done and the title is, Is Finding Your Voice as a Writer Just Plain Laughable? Now, you know, we speak about, you know, the, the fact that you need to find your voice and nurture your voice and this author has said, her name's Mary, has said, uh, have you found your voice yet? I hope not because this whole idea of finding your voice is pure, well, cow splatter. <laughs> it is harsh. <laughs> and she says, why? Because you and I never lost it in the first place. Your a writing voice is innate. What do you think? Well, I have strong thoughts about this. I'm going to be a little circumspect in my in my. Uh, words, I, I don't agree at all. I have okay. to say, I don't agree at all because I do. But yeah, we we I absolutely okay. No, I do agree a little bit because I we do have our own voices, and that's very very true. We bring all our own experiences and our own way of of putting things together and all that sort of stuff we bring to it. We all have our own voices, but we but not everybody writes with their own voice um, straight away. Some yeah. people sit down to write something and think that they have to somehow be a writer capital W, and that the writing voice is different to the speaking voice and that somehow they have to be more important or more wordy, verbose. Mm. I, usually, I usually find that that's the case. You know, more adjectives make you a writer. Um, I actually think that it's only through practice that you really do get to grips with the way that you write and mm. that's when your voice starts to come through. Like I have, I've had people come up to me having read the Mapmaker Chronicles and said to me, it's like you're reading it to me. I can hear your voice in my ear. These are people that know me. I can hear your voice in my ear as I mm. read the book. Um, and that's, I, 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 I've spent like with magazine writing and, and fiction writing, I've spent 25 years getting to the point where I write like I speak. And mm. not everybody does that straight away. It takes time no. to learn how to do that. Blogging is really good for that. I, I found blogging really, really good for my fiction from that perspective mm. um, because there's an intimacy of voice in blogging that allows you to develop you as a writer yes. and what people respond to in you as a writer as opposed to somebody else's writing. Because, you know, sometimes the first thing we do when we sit down to write is start to write like other people because yeah. we've read so many books and we've done all those things. So, I yes, your writing voice is innate, but sometimes you do have to poke around a little bit to find it. I think that's a really good point about blogging because there are, I know quite a few aspiring authors who refuse to blog, you know, mm. um, but that's a whole other story. So anyway. We could talk about that for a long time, Valerie. We could, let's we not could. We'll save so that, it for that, another those day. Those are my thoughts on, on that anyway. So, you, you know, you don't, have you got anything to add? <laughs> not really. <laughs> let's, does, does that mean I went on and on a bit? <laughs> Right you on. can go on. I like you. I like it when you um, get on your little soapbox. Was a so, soapbox, wasn't it? a small soapbox. Yes. I found a great link this week, which um, 
is uh, it was in Daily Life and it's by Natalie Riley and she's written a great little piece on life advice from sponsored posts, which kind of reminds me of that book, you know, My Year of Living Oprah, of the, oh, the yeah, writer yeah, who decided yeah. to take all the advice of Oprah and live like, at, at, like all the philosophies of Oprah for the year. But anyway, this is life advice from sponsored posts. And Natalie talks about the fact that in the world of blogging these days, you know, when we used to go to blogs where they were just full of these authentic stories and ideas and experiences. Now they're, you know, peppered with the occasional sponsored post. But these sponsored posts are sometimes, you know, disguised as uh, life events or, or um, you know, uh, uh, holidays or, or that sort of stuff. So she's got a, a list of different things where um, she, say, she says that, you know, sometimes you might, it might be a, a post that's, that's about, oh, I felt a little lonely yesterday, but... Um, when the blogger talks about feeling a little lonely, they then say, oh, well, they cheat themselves up by buying some beautiful stationery from, you know, a shop on Etsy and uh, <laughs> it's, and look out for the exact card in my forthcoming book <laughs> and, and just sort of stuff like... Look, I, I look, I, I think it's a, it's a funny pose. Like she's, she's really nailed it in a, in a lot of areas. You know, yes. do you have postnatal depression? You should totally put on my favourite bright red lipstick um, <laughs> and things like that. But I have to say that she's being a little harsh as well because I I think that sponsored posts are one of those things in blogging that you know you either choose to do them or you don't and if you choose to do them then you know great for you that I think I think it's great because I do think it's amazingly amazing that what blogging has opened up is an opportunity for people to build themselves a business you know on their own terms, in their yeah. own way. And I think that's great. Um, and I do think that there are some Australian bloggers who do sponsored posts extremely well. Yes. Um, but the thing is, being a personal blogger and writing a sponsored post is a, a really, really difficult call. Yep. And so I say most of them do a really good job. They have a really good fist of it. As someone who has re- who spent, you know, quite a few years in my 20s writing advertorials for magazines Mm -hmm. and having to come up with something that fit not only the client but also the magazine and and Mm. all of those sorts of different things. It's not an easy thing. And if I was then adding my the fact that it was in my own personal brand as well, I it, it's a it's a really fine line and high wire. And I think Mm. that a lot of them do a great job. So I do understand why they kind of um default to some of these tropes that she's talking about because really like what are you gonna do what are you gonna say like it's well yeah readers, that's true. sometimes I get a bit anxious so I went and got myself <laughs> a blend of essential oils well yes what else, what else would you do it's just <laughs> we'll put the link in the show notes yeah, anyway no, because it's, it's quite it's, amusing it's, and I think yeah. a lot of people who write sponsored posts will also find it funny well I started a book on the weekend because my booktopia you know parcel arrived and um, it's actually called Hades by Candace Fox. Hades is H-A-D-E-S. Um, and it won the Ned Kelly Award last year. And her second book, which is called Eden, is going to be due out any second, you know. Um, yeah. It's going to be out before Christmas. And I don't usually read a lot of crime. So I'll go through periods. I watch a lot of crime and I have read, you know, had sort of phases of crime reading in the past, but I haven't read a lot of crime in a while. 
so this is obviously a crime slash thriller uh, kind of novel. And I thought it was particularly interesting to bring up because the protagonist is actually a female cop called Eden. But uh, Candace has chosen to write uh, from the point of view of Eden's um, police partner, who is a man. Mm. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting um, approach because, you know, it is a little bit harder sometimes to write from in first person from the opposite sex mm. <laughs> um, and, from, and when the protagonist isn't the, the first person as well. Yeah, so what are your thoughts approach. on that? Well, the question I have to ask you is does it work? Because at the end of the day, anything can be fantastic if it works and it mm. can also be awful if it doesn't. So, you know, it's it's um, obviously she's won the Ned Kelly Award so it's yeah. worked fairly well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm about a third of the way through. I'm definitely gripped and I find none of it jarring, which, you know, I, I keep looking for the jarring bits, if you yeah, know what yeah, I mean, yeah, as, a, yeah. as someone who's used to analysing this sort of thing. And, and I find none of it jarring. It, it goes very, very smoothly and it's very compelling. It's, it's a page turner so far. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'll hmm. borrow it after you've finished. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll definitely have Candice on the podcast at some point. Yes, yeah, so fantastic. To talk about. You can ask um, her why she did it. Yeah, I will. Yeah. do that. Excellent. What's happening in the world of blogs this week? Well, this week we had a very interesting blog post from our good friend Kerry Sackville. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Kerry. So um, obviously lots of listeners will know that we had a podcast with Kerry at one stage and also that she is a close personal friend of the Writer's Centre. Yes. She wrote a very interesting post about the fact that she's just finished writing her fourth book and submitted it to her agent and, um, and went on to talk about the fact that the, her third book, which she wrote last year, she considers to be a failure because it wasn't picked up, um, it was possibly, um, it got great uh, feedback from publishers but they said it was, it was a book about grief and they said it was too sad and they couldn't market a book about grief. So it's where she talks about, you know, basically the ups and downs of being a career writer in the sense mm. that, um, you know, she talks about the fact that she was absolutely crushed because her first two books had been so well received yep. and then her third manuscript, you know, they it was just like, sorry, but, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And she was obviously crushed mm. um, as you would be and she talks about that. And I think it's, it's great to see somebody who is so successful talking about the fact that there are detours in a, and, and I call them detours. I said to her online, it's not a failure, it's a detour. Yeah. Because if you are going to have a writing career, then this kind of stuff is going to happen. This happened to me um, a couple of years ago. My novel had been accepted by Pam McMillan and then due to various, you know, lots of different things happen. People um, change, um, you know, staff move on, things change, and it didn't It didn't end up getting published. The rights reverted to me. And I um, was devastated. It had taken a long time to get to that point. It had been backwards and forwards and all that sort of stuff, and I was devastated. However... I had also written the Mapmaker Chronicles at that stage and it had just been accepted by, um, by a shed. Mm. So I was working constantly on other things and that's always been my message is that if you want to be a career writer, you have to have other things on the go all the time. Yeah. You can't have all your eggs in one basket. And Carrie's the same. You know, she's always working on different things. So, yes, she was crushed but, you know, you can't keep a good woman down. She's finished her fourth book and with any luck we'll be hearing some really, really good news about that soon. I so have no doubt. what are your thoughts on all that? Absolutely, and I like the fact that you call them detours because sometimes you can, you know, it's the same as when you write $100,000, uh, not $100,000, 100,000 words of a manuscript. 
and then realize, oh my God, I have to chuck it all out or something like that. You know, sometimes you have to get, you have to produce the stuff that isn't, that either isn't good or that just isn't commercially, that might be good, but not commercially appealing at the time. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be commercially appealing in three years. So it's not something, I, I hope she doesn't, you know, chuck out the manuscript or anything. No, no, I'm sure she's mm. just shelved it for another sunnier day and we'll see what happens That's then. Right. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the journey of that is down the track. But speaking of journeys, um, our writer-in-residence this week is Charlotte Wood, who mm. is one of, you know, she's had a lot of um, prize success, award success. She's one of Australia's uh, respected novelists. And we had a very, very interesting conversation about her writing process um, because, you know, obviously writing literary works like she does She's not putting out a book a year like a lot of commercial writers are. So Mm. we discussed that and we also talked about the idea of the author platform because Charlotte's quite vocal in her – she she has a blog and she's on Twitter and things like that. So she's not a complete disbeliever or unbeliever or whatever the word is. Um, but she has she has great reservations about it. And so we had a good talk about those and um, her thoughts on, you know, publishing and, and where it's all going. And I think um, that you'll find it really interesting. Charlotte Wood has been described as one of the most intelligent and compassionate novelists in Australia. She writes fiction and non-fiction and has been shortlisted and longlisted for several prestigious prizes, winning the People's Choice Medal in the 2013 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards for her last novel, Animal People. Charlotte has lectured in writing at various universities and has served as a judge for awards, a mentor and more. She is currently working on her fifth novel and we have interrupted her to speak to her today. So welcome, Charlotte. Hi, Alison. Thank you. Um, so let's start at the beginning. I'd, I'm interested to know now that you're writing your fifth novel, if you mm. remember writing your first novel, which was Pieces of a Girl, I believe, what made yeah. you do it? Oh, God, what makes writers do it? That's a huge question. But um, I think I yeah, do remember it. And <laughs> it was quite um, a strange and you can hear the planes going over my house in Maricol now. Um, it was a, it was a really instinctive process that first time, which was kind of um, fantastic in some ways because you feel very free, but in other ways because you don't know what you're doing at yes. all. Um, and in other ways, it's kind of anxiety provoking because you don't know what you're doing. Yes. Um, look, I probably always wanted to write without really knowing it. I was, you know, one of those. Um, school kids who was really good at English and liked writing essays and I always loved reading more than anything and I became a journalist but I was never a very good journalist um, but I think I became a journalist because I wanted to write you know so yeah. um, and I gradually just started scribbling things when I was at uni I did creative writing and that sort of gave me the idea that it was possible and I realized that um, sort of more and more it just made me happier and saner person when I was writing than when I wasn't so I and I like making things you know so part of the great satisfaction of, of writing the first novel and all the others is that sense of making something out of nothing. So how old were you when you came to write your first fiction like to, to start that novel to be you know that piece of work? Yeah I was um, in my late well, actually, I was, I was quite late for, you know, lots of writers start when they're kids or whatever, but I, I didn't, I started that novel um, after my mum died, and that's when I was 29, 
and I think that was kind of a factor in that, you know, when something like that happens, my father had already died, and so becoming, you know, an orphan in inverted commas yeah. at a relatively young age was a pretty huge thing to happen, and in those sort of circumstances, life really separates into things that are important and things that are not important, and suddenly writing became really urgent for me right. to think, I'm going to stop thinking about it and just do it. And did you have an idea of the kind of book that you wanted to write? Like, did you, because you, you are, you know, you are sort of put into the literary fiction end of um, mm. town, so to speak. It, do you set out to write a literary novel or did, is that just um, what comes out of you? That's what comes out of you. I probably, you know, I wanted to write the kind of books that I like to read. And especially back then, I was much, I was really in love with language, you know, and had no idea about plot or, um, you know, really structure of, of fiction. All that stuff, I've become much more interested in the craft of it as I've gone on. But um, it, um, back then I was really just in love with sentences and the kind of richness of language and that probably really in itself almost puts you in the literary fiction camp, I suppose. And an interesting character more than... Um, you know, the propulsion of the narrative, even right. though I'm really, I am really interested in that now, but I still, um, I suppose that's what puts you in those categories. Although I think writers are really not the ones to decide in a way, you know, you just write what you write and then somebody else tells you whether it's literary fiction or commercial fiction or whatever. Right. So what was your path to publication with that novel? How did, how did Pieces of a Girl come to be published? I was working away on it. Um, I started in sort of community writing classes and then um, Varuna, the writer's house, was a really big um, support to me. It's a place in the Blue Mountains yeah. that um, hopefully your listeners will know about because it is a fantastic support, especially for new writers. And they had a lot of mentorships and that sort of stuff. And I did a couple of... Um, mentorships and fellowships there so you can just go there and, and work on your book on your own or it's it's you know this was a long time ago so it's all different now but similar sorts of um, programs where you can work with a mentor and I worked with um, you know, with a bunch of other people with um, Brenda Walker right who was fantastic uh, support and then I had another mentorship right near the end with the editor Judith Lucan Amundsen who's a very respected editor and she was the one who told me that my book was finished. Right. Um, <laughs> would you have just was, kept going forevermore? Well, I would have probably kept going for too long. Right. Quite interesting that question actually of when to let go. Yeah, when do you walk away from um, it? And she um, offered to um, take it to a publisher for me so of course I thought about that for about a millionth of a second and said, yes, please. And that all happened very quickly and easily, which was um, a surprise to me. Um, what what didn't happen quickly and easily was my second novel and the publication of that because, you know, you sort of, I think a lot of writers think um, once you get the first one published, that's the hard bit. But um, my experience was not that, that the second one was rejected by that publisher and then... Right. Um, taken up by my current publisher, Jane Palfrey, and, and um, but that was, I was really glad to have that big shock to the system very early in my career, right. because it was it was a real shock. And um, that they didn't simply love it and take it. 
Yeah, and that I'd sort of had the, you know, I felt that I'd been led to believe that I was on the path, you know. Yes. And, um, you know, perhaps I wasn't led to believe that at all. I just believed it myself. But I do think there is a kind of um, misconception that the first one is the hard one, whereas in fact it's really, these days, especially for literary fiction, really every book is, you know, it's touch and go for most writers of whether it's even going to get published. Right. So it's tough. Okay, so you're you're now writing Neville, Novel 5. Mm-hmm. Do you do anything differently to, you know, how to, to how you approached your first one? Uh, funnily enough, this one has turned out to be really quite similar in process to the... Well, I keep feeling like it's more like the first one than any of the others. Right. But, you know, many, many writers will tell you that every book is completely different. And, it, you know, I sort of didn't really get that until I started doing it. But I do remember writing the first book and then thinking, oh, thank God that's over. Now I know how to do it. Right. <laughs> and then I got to the second one and thought, oh, my God, I've got no idea how to do it because everything is different with each book. So, you know, you learn some things, but hopefully you're trying not to do the same thing again. You know, if you're following something that interests you, you don't really want to just write the same book again. So you just come up with a whole new set of problems that are completely unfamiliar. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's... it's (laughs) And it's really... uh, It's just... In one look, I think you do develop confidence that I have felt like this before and it worked out okay. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily have the tools each time. You know, you don't necessarily think, okay, this happened last time, so now I do this. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. just sort of have, have more faith, I guess. That it will work itself out. Yeah. Do you, um, are you one of those authors who has, you know, notebooks full of ideas and things? Like, do you finish, will you finish this current? novel and know what you're going to do next or does um, is that kind of percolation time a part of your process? It seems to be turning into a sort of pattern where towards the end of one book I get an idea for another one. Yeah. I mean I think one of my um I'm quite lucky in that I basically have one idea at a time. Right. <laughs> you know, lots of writers have you know, they're just filled with ideas and they suddenly get taken by, Oh, I want to write that book instead whereas I, my brain you know, it's a very basic thing and just I have one idea and I keep sticking with it virtually because I have no other idea. <laughs> well, at least and, you're not distracted by bright, shiny things on the Yeah, horizon. well, it actually, you know, it turns out that it is quite helpful not to have too many ideas at a time. <laughs> um, but it seems to be to have developed into this kind of rhythm where I'm getting quite despondent with the book, you know, the current one and then another idea comes to me, very vague, you know, very sort of, rough outline of an idea and that you know who knows if this will happen again but it seems to have happened the last two or three times where it sort of gives you a bit of a charge to hurry up and get this one done because yeah. that uh, the new one is so much better yeah always <laughs> the new idea is just so much more interesting and it's going to be really easy to write and fun and um you know and i just want to so now i just got to get this one out of the way so i can move on to the thing i really wanted to so it kind of has a quite a useful um, effect in in sort of re-energising you to just finish the one that, that I've got going at the Get moment. Get to the end. And how long does it actually take you to write a novel? Are you 
you know, are you writing every day for six hours for 18 months or are you, um, how, how does the process was, work? But it, I go through probably more phases of writing than that sort of regularity. Yeah. Um, so I have a really intense periods of doing that for, you know, a couple of months at a time and then I'll have to stop um, that sort of intensity for various reasons to do with, I don't know, you know, earning money or <laughs> oh, that boring teaching stuff. or yeah, boring stuff. But it's quite good as well to get, for me, to get breaks between drafts and that kind of thing to yeah. get some distance from it. Um, but um, yeah, it sort of comes in surges for me. I think is maybe the word to describe it. But I do think a routine is really crucial for people who are, you know. Um, aspiring to write or learning to write and you know when I and I think in a way the more you go on the more you think you need all this time when in fact you know my first book I had a full-time job um, mm. everyone I knew who was writing first books had full-time jobs we still wrote the books you know? yeah. some of them had children as well as full-time jobs yeah um, I don't but you know you can having time you know the more time you have the more time you can squander as well so that's right it's not. Um, it doesn't have to be a great block if you don't. You know, you don't have to have endless weeks of nothing happening. So, are you a writer who do you do you plot every scene and every line before you actually begin, or is your no, writing uh, process more organic than that? It's very organic and chaotic, and I never know what I'm doing, which makes it extremely tiring. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I will. I guess I might start with a uh, place. Yeah. So with this book that I'm writing now, I knew fairly early on. Well, I probably knew before I began that it was going to be set in a prison for girls, like teen, late teenage girls or girls in their early twenties, right. young women, I suppose. Um. So I knew that, but that's all I knew. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know. Um, who the people were, where it was, or and I gradually, or, or when it was set. Initially, it was going to be set in the sort of seventies and sixties uh, and seventies, and be quite a realist sort of novel. And then I had a bit of, I tend to have this sort of breakthrough ideas, you know, very infrequently, unfortunately, um, <laughs> that then changed the course of the book for the next, you know, six months or a year. And then I have another, ah, no. This is what's going to happen. So I can sort of see a little way ahead, but um, but that's in terms of the plot, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it takes a long time to work out what's going to happen, and you know, and I go down many many false trails and throw a lot of stuff out. And um, in the beginning, my sort of first draft is really a process of just getting words on the page and just punching out lots of words and that's a kind of finding out process. And right, then, so you do you do a I'm getting this down in a first draft and then I'm going to go back and redraft and redraft and redraft. Yeah. yeah. So how and many drafts the, do you do? Well, I always find it hard to answer that question because I might redraft some bits of it, you know, 20 times mm. and other bits twice or three. But I guess I feel like I have three three or four major drafts as in going from beginning to end, working my way through the whole book. Um, so I would do that 
three or four times before it goes to my agent and then she might say, look, the end isn't right and then I'll go back and figure out what's wrong with it and you know, do it again. And then then it goes to the publisher and then there's the whole editorial process which is often for me another, redra- another redraft. Mm. Um, so it's hard to say but I guess substantively for three or four complete drafts and then within that, you know, anything from 10 to... So your your first draft can bear quite a little resemblance to yeah. your final product. Yeah, and I was, I was talking to some students about drafting, you know, the whole idea of redrafting and what it means to me. Um, and I, it was just after I'd finished Animal People, my last novel, and I went back and looked for the purpose of that lecture at my first draft, which was something like, it was only, I think it was 25,000 words or something, so it was really tiny. A novella. Yeah, and then, but you know, with massive gaps and holes and things that needed filling in and whatever. And then I looked at the final draft, which was still only sort of 55, 58,000 words, but I looked at what had transferred from the first draft to the final one, and it was only about 16,000 words of the same. So right. basically three-quarters of my book was written after the first draft. Wow. So when they talk about first drafts, you know, that your first draft can be crap, and but, you know, then you redraft and things. How, how do you know that what you have in your first draft is salvageable and that you shouldn't just move on to the next idea? Yeah, that's a bloody good question. Uh, I, I'm really me, glad I don't have to answer that. I'm glad I asked <laughs> it and I'm not answering it. Um, for me, the it's often a process of identifying where the energy is. Right. So it's not about the quality of the writing. I can have beautiful bits of writing that don't belong mm. or that just go down dead ends or whatever. So the first draft for me is really finding out whose story it is, who the people are, where they are, why they're doing what they're doing, all that stuff. But So, for example, in my my um, novel, The Children, I had this family of grown-up siblings and mm-hmm. their mother and father and whatever. And it was sort of... So my first draft, there was a lot of sort of ensemble thing. You know, I had... It was sort of equal space given to each of the siblings and that yep. kind of thing. And then, so the second draft... So I had about 50,000 words and in the the redrafting, the second draft of that was really identifying, realising that, no, there's really one main character and it's this one sister called Mandy. So then I thought, well, everything everything that stays has to be to do with her. It can be from the other's point of view, but it's got to be something about Mandy or illuminating her or having some conflict with her or whatever. So of my 50,000 words, I threw out 30,000 words. Wow. And you know, then we quite badly to do. Yes, that. very yeah. badly. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of gin drunk that night, um, but I actually weirdly can feel quite exhilarated and energised by throwing stuff away because it reveals the bones of the story. You know, it can sort of tighten everything up, and and you can so I can have a lot of fluff just floating around where. Everything just feels sort of, I don't know, there's no energy in it. It's all just, it's like having a really cluttered room, I suppose. 
Right. And you, know, you need and to when take, you take stuff things out. away, you can see where the main features are or what you know, where the what the most striking I don't know, bit of furniture. I'm going into a very lame way with this <laughs> metaphor. But do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's I sort do. of you can get clarity by taking things away. And then you can build on the important things rather than having everything of equal importance. It's just this sort of sludgy marsh. So you're not um you're not sort of because often in today's world of publishing, it's it's all about lots of books. It's about a book a year. It's get this out mm. here. The more books you have, the more you sell. It's all that sell, sell, sell stuff. Mm. Whereas you are more in the sort of slow book movement of percolating and creating and making this book, you know, as perfect as you as you can. Um, so how are you – is it – you said, you know, you've also got to earn money and do all those sorts mm. of things. And so given that there is so much time involved in this, you know, how – do you find it difficult to make that time? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's. I think with writing the kind of books that I do, you really do it in the end for reasons other than money. Yeah. Um, and you. When I first began, I thought I, I the reasons that I did it when I first began are different from the reasons I do it now. Okay. And if I was to be honest about when I first began, I I think I felt quite ambitious and I felt that I would, um, you know, I'm not sure that I knew or that I, you know, consciously felt all this, but I think I felt that I would, there would be a path that goes from, you know, beginner to experience and, and I would bring readers along with me. Yep. Um, you know, there would be an increase, you know, there would be this rising yep. um, level of, um, readership and you know probably a tiny bit of me was interested in you know a bit of fame and glory yeah. <laughs> put that behind me um, but you but what you come to realize is how little control you have over what happens after the book is published yeah um, and I have developed a readership a really beautiful loyal loving readership and I feel kind of incredibly lucky to have my readers um, but you also have to have the guts to think like each book I've written I've thought oh the readers who loved my last book will not like this book right. and I felt kind of um, worried about that but often it's turned out not to be the case you know that they and I know the writers that I really love I follow them because they're going to surprise me you know yeah. or um, I want to see where they go next. It's not necessarily that, oh, that book isn't like the previous one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that said, probably lots of people would say, yeah, they <laughs> But I feel like I mean, this one particularly is very different from the last couple. Um, I don't even know where I was going with that, Alison. I don't know either, but it's, I was so fascinated. I was happy to go with you on that. Because we, we've discussed in, in the past in interviews that we've done for the blog and things like that, we've talked about branding um, mm -hmm. and we've discussed social media and we've talked about all those things that you describe as all that junk, which I loved. Um, <laughs> So, you know, this notion of you are creating, um, you're not writing the same book all the time. You are, as you say, you are, you know, surprising readers. Um, whereas 
often readers now or publishers would lead you to believe that you have to produce a similar style of thing each time, otherwise your mm. readers will leave you. Um, so, I I mean, well, I where does that leave all this? Genre, you know, yeah. um, and in literary fiction, I've never, ever felt that pressure. And in fact, I think they would probably be, you know, I'm, I guess... You know, you have a style that you can't do anything about. You yeah. know, that you write stuff that other people can recognise. I remember when I was, I can't remember which book I was writing, but I remember saying to my agent, oh, this one's so different to the last one. And she said, it's not, you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, she she was saying, I can, you know, people will recognise your style even if you don't see the similarities. Yeah. Um, so I guess you develop an, an understanding of what a, a, a literary writer's Preoccupations might be maybe, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or their way of looking at the world or something. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that publishers of literary fiction are necessarily um, desperate for you to write, you know, to have a consistent sort of approach. And again, it really depends on the particular publisher and the, as in the person. And Jane Palfreyman is my publisher, and I could not have a more supportive staunchly loyal publisher. I'm so, so glad that I ended up with her. Fantastic. Um, um, and, you know, with literary fiction, it there's not the sales at stake that there are with, you know, say, commercial women's fiction or crime fiction or that sort of thing, or especially people writing series and that kind of thing. So you don't... There isn't the pressure to produce at the rate that there would be yeah. Um, for other books, yeah. and also they, well, if you have a good publisher, they understand that. You know, I can't really predict what's going to happen with this book, and I haven't had a book sort of die on me yet. But I suspect it will happen one day. Do you get? Um, um, I don't think so. But just do you get that um, that sense with literary fiction? Are, are you are you getting the same uh, sort of? gentle persuasion from publishers that you need to do this author platform thing, that you need to be on social media and all that sort of stuff? Because I know you do Twitter and you have, yeah. you have your, um, your, your blog, which is kind of more food-related than anything else. Well, it's actually kind of morphing now into not food-related, but yeah. Um, look, my publisher's never mentioned it. Right. Um, and, and in fact, I heard the head of publicity at my publisher once say, God, I wish all these writers would write books instead of being on Twitter all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was so, I thought that was so refreshing. Yeah. I know people, some people have been asked, you know, or it's been even put in their contract to to be, you know, develop a social media platform and all of that. That's, my experience is that my publisher has never mentioned it. Um, she, you know, the, the, the staff that I work with in the publisher are not personally on social media they yeah. really don't care about it all right okay because um, it's quite difficult for literary authors you know it's a difficult space in which to build an yeah. author platform anyway isn't it like it's not an easy it is road. and i'm probably lucky in in my age in a way that i started publishing before there was any such thing as social media yeah um so you know i have you know a, a, a readership that is sort of established um, and and I guess a lot of my readers are people who aren't even on social media. Yeah. So, I, you know, there's this debate going on on Twitter that you, um, 
know all about about you know how how essential is it and i would argue now that it's not essential at all and i was on twitter for 5 years because i loved it you know i still yeah. love it but i'm much more moderate about it now yeah and i think i had something like i think i had 3000 followers and then i just became kind of tired of it and yeah. i decided that in order to really focus on my next book i just wanted to be free of it and not free of other people, but free of my own obsession with it. Really. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I deleted my account and said goodbye to my three thousand followers and whatever. And most people just said, "Oh, you know," on Twitter said, "Oh, it's sad to see you go, but we want your books more than we want you on Twitter." So good luck to you, which was really nice. Yeah. A couple of people said you're making a huge mistake, oh. and um, um, you you know authors really need to be on Twitter. And I said, well, I'm just not convinced of that because in my market, um, you know, literary fiction, the, 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 if we're just really being ruthless and talking about book sales, the highest selling authors in my market were at the time people like Anna Funda, um, say now the Richard Flanagan, yeah. um, Christoph Cholkus, those sorts of people. None of those people are on any social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And even and then the argument then is yes, but well they're all established, so it's newer writers. And I would still say that I don't, I don't think being on, you know, there's a wonderful book called The Night Guest by Fiona McFarlane yep. um, that's doing extremely well. I've never seen her um, on social media. Um, Graham Simpson's The Rosie Project. He was on social media, but that's not what drove the sales. You know, it was the the book, the book is what sells itself yeah. to publishers and the publishers, you know, sell it. Um, and yes, it can be helpful, but in terms of the time that is required to build up a decent following on Twitter, it's just a no-brainer to me that, that you know, I would rather, if, if I was on Twitter to get book sales, it would be a complete failure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter for other reasons, which is that I really like talking to people, and it's a nice yeah. way to kind of um, relieve some of the isolation of writing and all of that. But also, another kind of important factor for writers of the kind of fiction that I write is that you need to be quiet. You know, you have to kind of go into a quiet, private, very deep thinking sort of space in order to produce your work. And social media is the opposite of that. Yes, it's very noisy. It's noisy and it's fast and it's quite um, skittery and superficial. I'm not saying it's necessarily always superficial because a lot of it you can have some really rich and deep conversations on it. But, you know, it's it's built to skate around the surface of things. On. So um, it's about how if you can do have both of those mindsets at once, Good luck to you, but I find that quite hard. Yeah, and I need to sometimes go into a complete, um, you know, um, isolation from all that outside sort of noise in order to really think deeply enough to produce the work. Fair enough. All right. So, last question of the day then would be, you know, your top three tips for writers for for emerging writers. Okay. Well. Um, Hmm, I should have thought about this 
more carefully before I began. But I thought you would have well, asked that so many times. You would have them like well, you know, you know stuff what? To the I think wall. my tips just change all the time. Ah, things that I thought you know five years ago. I think oh, never find Courtney. So sorry to all those people who I told things to five years ago. Um, look, I would say commit. The first thing is to really commit and be serious about it, and that means taking time away from other things. It means realizing that time is never going to open up. And suddenly you're going to be presented with, you know, three months of uninterrupted. That's just not going to happen. So you have to say no to other things. Um, read, 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 read. Um, everyone says that, of course. Um, and just be prepared to um, be vulnerable, I guess, in that sometimes you, especially when you start writing, you write things that you think, will make people think well of you. (laughs) And they're not the things that are interesting, really, because there's always some sort of self-protection going on. So once you start really investigating what, you know, the weird things that interest you truly in your own strange brain, you know, passion kind of wins out, really. So you, you, if you follow what really, um, interests you, you will get to the heart of some good work. Whereas if you think, I want to write a book like, um, um, forget my bookshelf, if I want to write a book like Rachel Cusk, you can't do it. You know, you have to really, there's a a great book about writing called The Writing Life by Annie Dillard and and she quotes, I think it's Thoreau, who says, know your own bone, gnaw at it and bury it and gnaw at it still. And I really believe that, especially for literary fiction. It's just find what is particular to you that you're fascinated by and go there. And don't worry about what people are going to think of you for doing it. <laughs> it's so hard to turn that off, isn't it, though? Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. But that's when things take off. You see it all the time. You know, you see... I did an interview with Margot Lanigan. He's a brilliant writer, a very strange... Um, um, sort of speculative fiction. I don't even know yep. what she would call it, but yep. fantastic stuff. And her work took off when she stopped trying to write what she thought would please other people. Yeah. And she said, I wrote this stuff that felt like I was coughing it up. <laughs> and it was weird and it was kind of frightening and it had all this power and energy that nothing I'd done before um, had produced. And then that's when her readership suddenly took off. You know, so... People respond to that as readers. Fantastic. All right, Charlotte. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We'll let you get back to your fifth novel. I'm assuming it doesn't have a name as yet. No, it doesn't. I'm going through that tricky title process now. You should just call it Novel 5 and leave it in there. Yeah. (laughs) That will work. That's a good idea. All right. Well, thank thank you. you. Thanks again. Lovely to chat. Okay, thanks. Wow, interesting take on social media and author platform and all that. Hmm. Oh, but also just um, I, I love talking to people like Charlotte because, you know, the writing process is so important to her mm. and, you know, that, that sort of discover, discovery and discussion about that. So, I mean, you know, really like this is I'm, I'm kind of having I'm living the dream here really. I get to talk to all these people yeah. on a regular <laughs> basis. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Anyway, um, what have you got for me? Tell let's me. move on to our working writer's tip because this was a question uh, that I received on Twitter and it was about how you record phone interviews. Now, uh, how do you record phone interviews? 
Well, I have to admit I don't record phone interviews. Mm-hmm. Does that make me a bad person? No. no. I, I hate transcribing with oh, an yeah. absolute passion. Like I can't even begin to tell you how much I dislike it. This podcast is actually ideal for me because we have the conversation and then I never have to do anything with it ever again. I don't have <laughs> to even write a story afterwards. It's like this is heaven. Um, I should have been in radio. Yes. No, um, I don't. I type really, really fast yep. and I always have done um, and I... I think it's one of the best tips I could ever give a journalist is really get your typing speed up because yep. it will save you so much time. Um, so I tend to type as I talk yep. um, and and take the quotes down and stuff. If there's anything that I query, I just check it with the um, with my interview subject mm. and and then we're all good because, um, yeah, I just I can't transcribe. When I actually have to go and do face-to-face ones, I just do them on my iPod or whatever. But part of my part of me just... I mean, I love the face-to-face interview, but I just know the whole time that I'm going to have to transcribe it when I get home. Yeah. So I'm a little bit sad about that. You mean you record it on your iPhone? I just or record your... it on my iPhone, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I'm the same as you. Uh, for the vast majority of my interviews, I will type as they talk because, mm-hmm. um, fortunately, you know, thanks to Mavis Beacon when I was oh, eight. How much do we love Mavis? <laughs> yes. I love Mavis. And all sorts of typing games. I got my typing speed up very quickly. Um, but uh, if I do record an interview, so for, some, for whatever reason, particularly, I don't know, maybe – it's a sensitive issue and I don't want them to be hearing clickety-clack in the background uh, or, you know, it's it's something quite serious, um, then I will record, record it. record it. the right kind of interviews, yeah. <laughs> um, I will record it using an Olympus telephone pickup and um, that's the thing where you can put it in your ear and then you plug the other end into your digital voice recorder and then you put the phone over your ear and it will record their voice and your voice. Mm. So there's that. Um, I sometimes record interviews via Skype. So if, I've in, if I'm interviewing them via a Skype phone call, I can easily record that using, well, I use Audio Hijack Audio Pro. Audio Hijack. Yes, yes, but there are other ones. There's um, uh, Pamela for Skype uh, if you are on PC. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think because uh, people say to me, well, do you use an iPhone? And I must admit I don't because I have these – I'm just really clumsy. And because it's a touch screen, I uh, fear and have previously done this um, that I'll just accidentally touch it and turn the th- damn thing off. Oh. Or something, or brush it, and it'll turn off. Whereas when you're using my digital voice recorder, you have to press very specific buttons. You know, oh, I, I have a digital voice recorder as well, so it just sort of depends on the. It depends a lot on the length of the of the interview and stuff yes. as well. Um, if it's just a short, like if I'm just after three quotes for oh yes for something, then I just put it on my iPhone. Yes, I could um, probably do that. And to be honest, I've been so busy writing fiction and stuff this year that most I, I really like. I've focused very much on on doing shorter articles this year. I haven't yep. done a, an awful lot of big profile work or anything like that, nothing that required 10 case studies, yeah. <laughs> which is so disappointing. Um, <laughs> so disappointing. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, next year, talk to me. I might be doing all manner of different things. Who knows? Back into it. Back into it. Anyway, if you have a question you'd like us to answer, uh, email us, podcast at writercentre.com.au. You'll find the show notes for this podcast, so all of the links that we've referred to um, at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. You'll find Alison at alisontate.com. 
And I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Valerie Koo or my personal blog is ValerieKoo.com. But thank you so much for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It'll just take you a minute because um, that really helps us know what uh, you're getting out of the podcast but also helps us with our rankings. And again, if you have anything to say to us, just ping us on social media and we'd love to hear from you. We would. So until next time, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. 